You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And Andrea, we are obviously we're recording this before, just before we ring in the new year. Uh, but this episode will air uh, January fourth, I believe. So it seems uh, only appropriate that we talk about New Year's resolutions. <laughs> and um, what are your thoughts on New Year's resolutions, Andrea? Oh, you know, I mean. I'm not opposed to like good intentions and things like that, but I feel like it puts so much pressure on people to like make all these really dramatic changes in their lives that they're, you know, that as if they're, they're not doing good enough before and they, they need this kind of, you know, calendar restart to serve as an impetus. And, you know, I just find that it ends up being much more anxiety inducing and stressful than really a way to to motivate, you know, healthy habits or or new changes in your life. (laughs) Totally on the same page. I feel like at this point, New Year's resolution is just like a platitude. Um, (laughs) You know, it just, as you said, it just makes me feel anxious and guilty, you know, we, we set ourselves up and then let's say we, we don't reach these goals. We just end up feeling crappy and like, you know, disappointed in ourselves. So I agree. I mean, if, if you can set some things that are maybe realistic and, you know, realistic goals, that's, that's one thing, but I don't think it's a good idea for us to put too much pressure on ourselves, especially coming (laughs) out of 2020, which was, which has been a year that, uh, yeah, I know we all want to put behind us. So I I totally, I totally agree with that, Jess. I feel like, you know, I've been beating myself up, you know, personally, because, you know, I've had a hamstring injury. I haven't been running. I've gained 10 pounds, you know, I'm stress eating all the time. And, and like, realistically, if you look at it, like, you know, we're surviving, right? Like mm-hmm. everybody mm-hmm. is doing the best that you can. And and ultimately, you know, let's just celebrate that this year. I love it. That should be the mantra for 2021. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. So Andrea, let's recap what we talked about last week. So we talked about organic foods, what the organic label means, what it doesn't mean with regard to farming. Um, We spent a lot of time talking about the fallacy that organic foods are pesticide free. Um, And we're going to do a lot more talking on that topic today. Um, We talk about the cost to consumers relative to the cost for farming? Uh, and, you know, is it worth that increased cost? Is organic food worth that increased cost? Uh, and then we also talked about nutritional benefits. You know, are we paying more for nutritional value? So we have a heck of a lot more to say about organic. So we're going to continue the discussion today. Um, just to outline some of the topics that we hope to cover. We want to kick things off talking about environmental impact. Andrea has a whole lot to say about antibiotics and hormones. We'll talk about animal welfare. We'll talk a bit more about health and nutrition. And then we're going to close the conversation talking about the dirty dozen, something that I know I hear a lot about. So, 
Can I kick things off talking about the environmental impact, Andrea? Please. Okay. So, you know, I know we spent a lot of time last week talking about pesticides, but we have to continue the conversation because for sure the most discussed environmental advantage of organic foods is that they don't have any chemical pesticides. But as we know, that's just not true. So um, a 2010 study actually found that some organic pesticides can have a worse environmental impact than conventional ones. People think Most people seem to think that organic food does not involve any pesticides, but we know that that is absolutely not true. So um, the Soil Association, which is a major organic accreditation body in the UK, asked consumers why they buy organic. Overwhelmingly, 95% of respondents said that their top reason was to avoid pesticides. Um, Also, because organic food is completely non-GMO and therefore uh, some plants are less resistant, in some cases, more pesticides have to be used. Again, you know, organic foods are using organic pesticides, but these are still pesticides. And the difference between organic pesticides and regular pesticides is actually not all that big. Um, Organic pesticides come from natural sources and they're not processed, but they sometimes contain the exact same substances as regular pesticides. I'm going to go on and talk about some EPA regulations and how they regulate pesticides. But Andrea, did you want to jump in here with anything? Um, yeah, I mean, Jess, I think you did a really great job um, summarizing that. You know, the the big difference that you really, you know, emphasize there is that organic pesticides and synthetic pesticides, you know, they they very often vary only a tiny bit. Synthetic pesticides have been modified or synthesized in a lab. Um, but there, those modifications actually often enable them to be used in lower quantities um, because organic pesticides are less effective, um, or they they kill in a more much more non-specific manner. So they're killing non-target species as well, which I think we'll talk a little bit about um, as well as we did last week. Mm-hmm. So I thought it'd be helpful to to walk through how the EPA regulates pesticides. So the EPA is the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. They have a very rigorous process that requires that uh, products demonstrate no risk to human health if used correctly. All pesticides must go through a registration process requiring a review of data on the safety of the product, which include many pesticides used in organic agriculture. These data are used to construct pesticide labels, which anyone who uses them must legally follow. The label is the law. Some products will not make it through the stringent review process if they're found unsafe. So let's talk about the type of safety data that are collected. Um, One, we're evaluating, or not we, the EPA evaluates if the product can cause harm to humans and under what circumstances. So is it toxic to humans? They evaluate the dose or the amount that can cause harm. They evaluate the exposure, so the timing and frequency that may cause harm. So how often produce uh, has to be eaten, for example, um, would determine exposure. And then they evaluate the overall risk, uh, combined information about the dose, exposure, and conditions under which harm may occur. The EPA then sets tolerance levels of residues for the pesticide on food. 
The tolerance level is the amount of residue that's allowed and that has been determined to not cause harm to human health based on how much exposure a person is likely to have. Now, all of this is really stringent and rigorous, right? Now, this process is true for synthetic pesticides. So we're talking about conventional, not organic. We're talking about synthetic pesticides. And in fact, for some organically approved pesticides, which are naturally derived, no tolerance level is actually set. Andrew, yep. So, so Jess, Correct me if I'm wrong here, but what you're saying is that all of these stringent regulations, testing for safety, toxicity, efficacy of pesticides is applicable to synthetic pesticides, which are using conventional farming, but none of these hold true for organic pesticides, meaning that there's no regulations for safety, toxicity, or residual amount of pesticides in organically uh, farmed crops. Correct. And for me, the biggest thing is that we don't set a tolerance level for these natural pesticides. You know, what is safe for human consumption? So that really freaks me out. And I think I think that is is very relevant to what we talked about last week, where we saw that many of these organic pesticides like copper sulfate, um, like nicotine sulfate, they actually have um, much much more toxicity at lower doses. So the LD50 or the 50% lethal dose is much lower when you compare it to the correlate synthetic pesticide. So what that means is that they're more toxic at lower doses, but there's no criteria set for how much is too much to be used in these, in these crops. Yeah. The dose makes the poison, as you like to say, <laughs> for sure. So- did, sorry, were you going to say something? <laughs> um, no, no, no. I mean, I have an example kind of um, emphasizing some of the considerations that we should con- um, think about when we talk about organic versus conventional, but um yeah, happy to- take it away. All right. Let's hear so, it. so we talked about this last week, but again, you know, since we're talking about um, you know, residual pesticides and environmental impact. Um, there was a 2010 study in PLOS One. Again, we talked about this last week, but they looked at six different pesticides that you that are used to control aphids on soybean crops. And so four of these were synthetic, two of them were organic. And the the advertisement is that they're better. They're better for the plants, they're better for the environment, et cetera. What they actually found was that the the four synthetic pesticides were were not only more effective at controlling the aphids themselves, um, particularly at the recommended dosage, um, but the organic pesticides also killed non-targeted species. And these species were predators of the aphid. So the examples we use were the multicolored Asian lady beetle and the insidious flower bug. So what that tells us is not only are the organic pesticides less effective, um, but they're also mounting a greater environmental impact and are more ecologically damaging because they're also killing the predators of the aphid, which would be eating and killing those aphids naturally. Mm -hmm. Thank you for restating that. Right. Um, Anyone who's interested in this topic, I can't recommend highly enough um, this this article, this 2012 article published in Scientific, uh, excuse me, Scientific American by Dr. Christy Wilcox, who's an evolutionary biologist. The title of the article is are lower pesticide residues a good reason to buy organic? Probably not. And basically the whole point that she gets across is that organic pesticides pose the same health risks as non-organic ones. Um, 
I'm just going to read a quick quote, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. She says, there's nothing safe about the chemicals used in organic agriculture, period. They shouldn't be that shocking. After all, a pesticide is a pesticide. Virtually all chemicals can be shown to be dangerous at high doses. And this includes the thousands of natural chemicals that are consumed every day in food, but most particularly in fruits and vegetables. Yeah, exactly. Like we said last week, that suffix side is it means to kill. So it doesn't matter if it's a naturally naturally derived or, you know, modified in the lab. It's still killing things. Right. And, you know, of course, there's a reason that we have an abundance of natural pesticides. Of course, plants and animals produce chemicals to try to deter insects and herbivores from eating them. (laughs) Most, (laughs) duh, right? (laughs) Most of these natural pesticides, as we just described, have not been tested for their toxic potential as, again, to reiterate what we just said, the reduced risk program of the EPA applies only to synthetic pesticides. And, you know, we're doing more and more research into the toxicity of these natural pesticides, and we're finding that actually they're just as bad as synthetic, and really sometimes they're worse. Mm-hmm. Um Many natural pesticides have been found to pose potential or serious health risks, um, including those that are commonly used in organic farming. Yeah, and Jess, I know we used copper sulfate as an example last week, a commonly used organic fungicide, and and that compound persists in the environment long term well after, you know, the crops have been harvested, you know, potentially having far-reaching effects beyond just on you know, immediate health of, of consumers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're talking about pesticides, but it's not just pesticides, right? The entire environmental impact of organic crops is just as big and actually sometimes bigger than conventional farming. So researchers at Oxford analyzed 71 peer-reviewed studies and observed that organic products are sometimes worse for the environment. They found that organic milk, cereals, and pork generated higher greenhouse gas emissions per product than conventional ones. Uh, But it is worth noting that organic beef and olives had lower emissions in most studies. Usually, organic products require less energy, but they take up more land, uh, a lot more land, about 84% on average. Per unit of product, organic produce generates higher nitrogen leaching, nitrous oxide emissions, ammonia emissions, and has more acidification potential. And I think you were just saying this, the yield of organic farming is actually generally lower than conventional farming. There was a study done in the June 2015 issue of Agriculture and Human Values that found that because organic agriculture is now done mostly by big corporations instead of local producers and farmers, and the lower yields combined with the intensive use of machinery means that overall, in terms of emissions and pollution, organic agriculture is usually worse than conventional. Yeah. And there was a, another study that came out in 2018, a huge study in Nature, which is one of the highest impact journals in the world. Um, and they found that organic food has a substantially larger impact on the climate as well. So you mentioned some of the, the nitrogen leaching and emissions and things like that. 
Um, this this study found that, um, you know, as an example, farming organic peas versus conventional peas had a 50% increase in climate impact. And the, the reason is very multifaceted. So as you already mentioned, they need to use more land to yield the same amount of product. Um, and, and that's partly because, you know, we're not using genetically modified organisms that can produce larger fruits or produce more fruits, um, but they're also not using, you know, your traditional fertilizers. So in mm -hmm. order to produce the same amount of organic food compared to conventional, you need a much bigger land area. On mm -hmm. top of that, um, because you're using more land, you're actually contributing to more carbon dioxide emissions because you need to deforest land further. And because our global agriculture industry is interconnected across every continent, that deforestation in one place is going to ultimately have far-reaching consequences in other places. Now, this study looked at specifically um, uh, produce crops, but this can also be extrapolated. So we're going to talk more about, you know, the livestock and, and animal welfare, but the rules with regard to rearing organic animal products means that they have to be fed organic feed only. And of course, um, you know, they're not able to be administered antibiotics or hormones. We'll talk about what those implications are in a minute. But since they're being fed only organic produce, only organic feed, um, they, they're going to have a worse climate contribution as well. Um, because organic meat and organic milk production requires organic feedstocks. That means that the land needed to generate the same amount of organic feed for animals is also going to require more land. So that mat, that's going to magnify the climate and, in, and environmental impact um, you know, to the, the meat and milk products as well. Um, mm -hmm. and something I like to reiterate, you know, is that, you know, organic farming prohibits the use of hormones and antibiotics. It also prohibits the use of genetically modified organisms. Um, and, and those can actually be engineered for greater crop yield, larger fruit or vegetable sizes, which can also reduce how much land you need. So you're going to kind of accelerate or magnify the disparity between the land use required for conventional farming versus the land use required for organic farming. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best, it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line, it's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Mm -hmm. So, wow. Can you tell that we're passionate about this, guys? <laughs> <laughs> so this next topic, I, I, if it's okay, I think we should move on to um, antibiotic and hormone use. I, I just have to share this very quick anecdote. Last year, pre-COVID, I was at the park with the kids and I, you know, out of character for me since I'm so antisocial, but I struck up a conversation <laughs> with another mom and happened to, I don't know how it came up that we were switching over. My, my daughter was switching from, um, you know, from formula and breast milk to to whole milk, to milk. And um, immediately, immediately, this mother had a lot to say. And she was telling me, oh, oh, make sure that you only buy organic because, and I quote, um, your son will grow breasts and your daughter will get her period before she turns 10 years old. 
So we have to, Andrea, I need you to help nip this in the bud. Um, Let me just set the stage here. The demand for food products raised without antibiotics uh, and hormones is growing fast. In 2012, sales of these products had increased by 25% over the previous three years. And this market is only growing. The overuse of antibiotics in food-producing animals is being blamed for the increase in resistant bacteria, also known as superbugs. So obviously, the example that I just gave, or not the example, um, the anecdote that I just provided, we were really talking, I was really more talking about hormones, but antibiotic use is so often cited by concerned parents who are worried about what antibiotic use um, will mean for children, for so Andrea, can you talk to us about this? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think it, it makes sense to separate the two topics because they yes. obviously have very distinct, um, you know, roles. Um, but of course, neither of them are, are allowed in organic farming. So, so you know, antibiotics uh, are used in farming, of course, for many reasons. So antibiotics are chemicals that kill bacteria. Um, so they're used to prevent illness amongst animals. They're, they're used to treat infections. So for example, if a dairy cow contracts mastitis, which is an infection in the udder, um, and it also will help prevent the spread of illness. Um, there've been a lot of studies that have actually demonstrated that by, um, treating these infections or illnesses, it actually enables animals to grow four to 5% more than those that are not treated with antibiotics. Um, it also extends life expectancy of farm animals, and it also improves the shelf life of animal products such as meat, eggs, and dairy. Um, now, the reason we obviously, you know, consider this is, is um, in 2011, 80% of all antibiotics sold in the U.S. were were used for agricultural animals. Now, antibiotics have been used since the 1940s to treat these infections or, or reduce illness spread. And, and that's because animals have bacteria in their bodies, in their guts, on their skin, etc. Um, and, and ultimately, that certainly can include antibiotic-resistant bacteria, can include non non-resistant bacteria but ultimately those bacteria can spread between the animals they can spread from animals to humans um, those are called zoonotic diseases um, we have a lot of these the vast majority of infections are actually caused by these animal to human um, pathogens and and when we interact with these animals through slaughtering through harvesting eggs through harvesting milk um, those can contaminate the meat or animal products it can also directly contaminate humans um, So so before we kind of jump in, the USDA, CDC, and FDA have very strict regulations and surveillance methods to monitor residual antibiotics and and levels of those in food products. Um, So so the supposition or the theory that, you know, by consuming conventional animal products, we're eating lots of antibiotics, that's actually a fallacy. The chance of you actually consuming antibiotics through animal products is very, very low. Um, there's there's obviously um, strict legislation in the U.S. to ensure that contaminated food products are not able to enter the food supply. And that's true for Canada, Australia, EU, and other countries. Now, there's also, of course, additional regulations in place for farm veterinarians as well as animal owners um, to ensure that things that are going to be potentially used as food will be drug free. So that includes if you're raising chickens at home. Um, And so there are a variety of policies and protocols in place to ensure that this doesn't happen. 
currently, no evidence suggests antibiotics in food products are harming people. Um, the, the proportion of animal products that have been found to have animal uh, antibiotic residue is less than 0.8%. Um, and that's all residue. So that's any sort of contamination, including antibiotics. And those, of course, as soon as they're screened, they're removed from the food supply. And if there is a farm or some sort of producer that's violating this routinely, they're actually exposed and and there are repercussions to this. So so you know we're not consuming any antibiotics ourselves. So that we can kind of put that to bed. But of course there is still a concern that extensive use of antibiotics um, can increase the risk of antibiotic resistance. Now that's not just true for the agriculture industry. We see that mm-hmm. in human healthcare, you know, overprescription of antibiotics or prescription of antibiotics for non-bacterial infections, um, you know, viral infections cannot be treated with antibiotics. So taking lots of antibiotics in any scenario can put that pressure on bacteria to evolve resistance to commonly used drugs. Right. I just wanted to jump in for one sec. I think you're talking about something really important. And I, you know, I want to be clear, we're not anti-antibiotics, right? Right. Um, I, I always say whenever I, you know, I used to teach a course in preventative medicine. And for me, there's no question the two greatest discoveries um, that have, you know, led to the, the greatest improvement in public health and population health are um, vaccines and antibiotics. Mm-hmm. But as you're describing now, Andrea, you know, we're talking about the improper use of antibiotics or the overuse of antibiotics. And we see, I just, I, I don't know, we see it all the time where people are treating, you know, viruses with antibiotics, which makes no sense. It's just, just a, it's a, just a disaster. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And it's not right. just, and, and that's, I think the big point is that, you know, anytime you're using antibiotics, there's always a risk or, you know, a, a chance that certain bacterial species will evolve resistance, right? Bacteria are always evolving and usually they're outpacing humans, right? Um, and so that's, that's always going to be true. It's not unique to the agriculture industry. Um, now, in order to address that, though, the CDC has updated and, and you know, established these strict guidelines for types of antibiotics, methods for antibiotic administration, as well as monitoring, um, you know, the dosage and frequency and things like that. So they work with agricultural veterinarians um, moving to promote um, good animal hus- husbandry and animal welfare practices. And of course, if you're a farm worker, you want to practice good personal hygiene as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so those practices on top of vaccination to prevent the need for certain antibiotics enables farmers to reduce the antibiotics needed uh, in the beginning. Um, and of course, reduces the potential risk of accelerating any potential antibiotic resistance. Mm-hmm. Now, now this, of course, is still a concern, right? People are going to say, okay, well, you know, what, what does the data say? So there's obviously been a variety of studies. Now, the, the biggest or the most common players that we see that are uh, potential contaminants of food are Salmonella, E. coli, and Campylobacter. So I'm sure all of you have heard about these in the news. There are three distinct um, types of bacteria. 
Um, a variety of screens have established that, you know, these bacteria are generally present in a lot of animal products, um, up to 20% contained salmonella of, a, of 200 U.S. supermarket meat samples were screened in a particular study. Um, and, and of those 84% were resistant to at least one antibiotic. Now, again, a lot of this antibiotic resistant occurs naturally just through the process of evolution. Um, and of course, we have a diverse array of antibiotics that we can use to treat things. Um, there was a 2001 New England Journal of Medicine study that um, that did find that resistant bacteria were present in 81% of ground turkey, 69% of pork chops, 55% ground beef, and 39% of chicken um, pieces. Now, now that's kind of a, a, a lumped in summary. So if you look at kind of products that are claiming to be raised without antibiotics, including those that are labeled organic, um, there's actually evidence that suggests those products do contain resistant bacteria in addition to, you know, resistant bacteria that you might find in conventional meat products. So, so a 2005 study in applied environmental microbiology, they actually found that organic chickens were more frequently contaminated with bacteria like salmonella and campylobacter than your conventional chickens. Um, the bacteria in the organic chickens were slightly less resistant to some classes of antibiotics, but they had more contamination. A, another study in, in 2015 of Journal of Food Production demonstrated that the prevalence of another contaminant, enterococcus, was 25% higher in organic chicken versus conventional chicken. And again, the proportion of resistant bacteria was, was um, slightly reduced in the organic versus the conventional. But a recent, um, another study, uh, a study in 2013, found that 213 raw chicken samples, the frequency of antibiotic-resistant E. coli in organic chicken was statistically indistinguishable from conventional products that have no resist restrictions on use of antibiotics. So, so there's a, go ahead, Jess, I think you're going to do a great <laughs> summary of that. I was just going to say, girl, you... <laughs> I know that that you know this this chaps your ass. You have a lot to say about this topic. There's so many misconceptions. I just want to recap and sort of summarize the takeaway here. Um, okay, so we are not consuming any antibiotics ourselves from eating conventionally raised animal products. Louder for the people in the back, right? Although contributing to the evolution of antibiotic-resistant bacteria is a concern, this concern is true in the case of human medicine as well. You know, we, we were talking about it, overprescription of antibiotics or prescription of antibiotics for non-bacterial diseases and viruses. There are drug-resistant bacteria present in many animal products, including organic. And as Andrea just described, several studies have demonstrated that there's no significant difference among these. It's, of course, something to be mindful of, and there are always ongoing studies, but the FDA, the USDA, and the CDC have revised guidelines and regulations to address these concerns. Whew, Andrea, you want, I know, you know, the other part of this is uh, hormones. Did you want to dive into that? Sure, sure. Absolutely. So, you know, I think, I think we want to set the stage by saying what, what a hormone is. So a hormone is, is a, is a broad catch-all term for particular molecules that are produced by glands in all 
well, not all organisms, but multicellular organisms, and they're transported systemically throughout our body. So they get into our, you know, blood vessels, our circulatory system, and they regulate metabolism, they regulate physiology, they regulate our behavior. We have tons of different types of hormones, as do all organisms, that are required, necessary, and are regulated for our bodily functions and processes. Unfortunately, in the context of agriculture, the word hormone has ultimately been manipulated to try and scare people into thinking hormones themselves are bad. Now, there are kind of two broad classes of hormones. There are hormones that we call steroid hormones, and there are hormones that we call peptide hormones. So steroid hormones are made uh, of, of lipids, of fats, and peptide hormones are made of proteins. There are two distinct types of hormones. Um, and of course, all of these different types of hormones have lots of different roles in our bodies. So a lot of these are growth factors or uh, reproductive hormones or things like that. So um, want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. First, I want to kind of set the stage. So according to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, steroid growth hormones are not approved for use in dairy cows, veal, poultry, or pigs. So you might often go into the grocery store and see labels on these products that say no added hormones. And that's misleading because none of them, not even the conventionally reared products, would include steroid hormones. Now, steroid hormones are allowed in beef cattle and in sheep. Um, and these steroid hormones that we're talking about uh, are estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. So you are probably familiar with those as these are reproductive hormones. Um, when we when we apply these to beef cattle and sheep, these are actually little little pellets that are implanted under the skin uh, behind the ear, and these dissolve slowly and and release you know hormones systemically, and and they don't have to be removed. It's it's kind of similar to like your birth control implant or your birth control patch or things like that, where those are often like a progesterone or something like that, where they're slowly kind of diffusely released hormones to help regulate some sort of biological process. Now, with these uh, beef cattle and sheep and the steroid hormones, um, the, the ears, they actually discard. So you don't have the pellet, you don't, you know, the actual source of the hormone is not, uh, not used in any human food. Um, now, the FDA establishes acceptable limits for hormones in meat based on years and years of scientific data. And all of the approved hormones that are used have been studied at length and evaluated to pose no risk to humans for consumption of 
of animal products. And that's regardless of when the animal is harvested. So it doesn't matter if, you know, say it's a... Um, Say it's a cow that's slaughtered at one year versus two years. It, it, it has no bearing on the amount of hormone present. On top of that, there are synthetic analogs of these natural hormones that are also approved, and those are also regulated. There's required information. There's toxicology testing, laboratory testing, all of those sorts of things. Um, and of course, the FDA requires that manufacturers demonstrate that the level of hormone left in any sort of meat product is below those guidelines that are set in advance by the FDA. Um, and none of these are going to have any sort of um, health effect in humans. Okay. So what about something else that always comes up, um, bovine growth hormone? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, so bovine growth hormone, uh, so you see it sometimes as BGH or RBGH, which the little R just means recombinant. It's also called um, bovine somatotrophin. So you might see it as BST. Um, that's actually a peptide hormone. So it's different than the steroid hormones we just talked about. And this is a hormone, a protein that's produced naturally by the cow's pituitary gland. It's specific to cows. So it's not, it doesn't cross species like estrogen. Um, or progesterone or things like that. And, and this, this is administered to cows specifically because it increases milk production in lactating cows. It also assists with expediting fertilization and synchronizing breeding in cows. Um, and so, so cows treated with, with BST, BGH produce 10 to 15% more milk. So Milk producers can actually use fewer cows to produce a larger quantity of milk, which ultimately can also be better for consumers and the environment. So we're going back to kind of that environmental impact. On top of that, the FDA, WHO, so that's World Health Organization, and NIH, National Institutes for Health, have all demonstrated independently that there is no risk in consuming meat or dairy products from cows that have been given BGH, BST. There's no effect on humans when consuming milk or meat, meat products that um, were harvested from cows that were given BGH or BST. Um, something interesting, because I think I see this a lot on milk bottles, like, you know, raised from cows with no, no BST, no, no non-BST cows. Um, the, because it's a protein, um, milk is pasteurized, which means that we heat it to kill any bacteria in it. So it's safe for consumption and proteins undergo a process called denaturation. So they're degraded during a heating process. It's the reason why your egg white turns opaque when you cook it. It's a, it's protein denaturation. And so, so that pasteurization process actually degrades any residual B, BGH or BST that would be in your milk. Um, there's no nutritional difference between milk in that product, um, and there's no taste difference as well. Um, and, and of course, hormones are never directly added to milk either. Um, the only things that are added to milk would be vitamin A or D in fortified milk. So this is all at the level of the cow um, before, you know, um, harvesting milk from them. Andrea, can you hear me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. I have to apologize to everyone. I'm actually recording from home today. And of course, our lawn's being mowed right now. So just stop me if you hear a lot of background noise. And thanks so much for really taking us through that in so much detail. Um, so, you know, the anecdote I gave before, I, I think this is the con a concern about a lot 
that a lot of parents share. Um, mm-hmm. You know, several claims have emerged over the years suggesting that hormones in animals, um, you know, is triggering puberty or maturation in children at a younger age. Um, a 1997 study in pediatrics noted that girls in particular were entering puberty at earlier ages than previously accepted. And the group posited maybe hormones in food were causing this with no evidence, which is absolutely infuriating. So that really planted the seed, I think, in a lot of people's minds. A 2015 study in the Journal of Nutrition evaluated over 5,500 girls in the United States who did not yet have their periods. They were between the ages of 9 to 14 years. The study started in 1996, and the girls were followed prospectively for the following five years. And at that point... 97% of the girls did have their period. Meat and milk consumption were monitored. So what did the study find? They found that frequency of milk consumption did not predict age of onset of period. For girls who drank more than three glasses of milk per day versus those who drank one to four glasses per week, um, there were no significant difference in the age of first period. After additional adjustment for body size, uh, girls consuming more than three glasses of milk daily were 13% less likely to get their periods in the next month relative to those consuming one to four glasses per week. Neither total meat nor red meat consumption was associated with the age of onset of period. Sorry. Nope, go ahead. <laughs> Another study in 2001 uh, published in Pediatrics reported the same. Interestingly, this study found that girls who developed sooner tended to have higher body mass indexes. It also said that the findings of the early puberty study – in 1997, which which started this whole theory of milk hormones, coincided with a rise in nationwide rates of obesity. So again, we're talking about that original study in 1997, where the the authors, you know, they just they posited that oh, maybe it had something to do with with milk. That that's you know why girls were having their periods earlier and and hitting puberty earlier. And actually, this study, this up this newer study in 2001, they found that actually more likely than the milk theory um, that um, premature puberty actually coincided with a rise in nationwide rates of obesity. So maybe there is more more to do with body mass index than there is to do with milk consumption. Yeah, Jess, and it's worth noting that there's several studies since then that have also supported that that hypothesis that it actually has to do with obesity, body mass index, um, that children are larger at an earlier age and that and that um, hormones and and things like you know human hormones associated with obesity and things like that are actually triggering the the move into puberty at a younger age. Um, you know, but but unfortunately, we're seeing here another situation where you know a a study that doesn't have data or is making an unfounded claim really triggers the swirling of misinformation um, that that doesn't have a basis in science. So, you know, I, I think the big take home here is the data suggests that that any hormones, including steroid hormones that are given, um, you know, to beef and beef cattle and 
and sheep um, have no effect on humans when consuming animal products, including milk and dairy, and particularly the fallacy about um, accelerating puberty has more to do with body mass index of children as opposed to how much milk um, or animal products they're consuming. Okay, let's move on to animal welfare, because there's this perception that organic farms are treating animals better than uh, Mm -hmm. conventional farms. Studies show that consumers assume this, right? They assume that that animals from organic farms had exposure to fresh air, vegetation, and significantly more space to move than on standard non-organic farms. In reality, the standards do not provide clear requirements for either space or outdoor access for most animals. So as a result, um, some large USDA organic certified producers are raising animals in conditions um, that are virtually indistinguishable from factory farming. In I thought this was interesting that in, in January of 2017, following a decade of work by the ASPCA and other animal welfare groups, um, as well as by organic farmers themselves, the USDA issued the Organic Livestock and Poultry Practices Final Rule, the OLPP rule. And it was a substantial overhaul of USDA Organics animal welfare standards that helped align the program with consumer expectations. And it sought to add uh, critical protections and requirements such as separate poultry, transport and slaughter standards, easy access to the outdoors, outdoor access requirements, indoor and outdoor space requirements for poultry, uh, specific indoor enrichment requirements, and overarching pain control requirements. However, um, a small number of large producers and conventional trade groups pressured the administration to derail the rule. And so as a result, the USDA has repeatedly delayed its implementation and and actually ultimately withdrew it. Um, That being said, for those who are concerned about animal welfare, as, as I am, and I'm sure so many others are, there are independent farm animal welfare certifications that require more humane practices. If you want to learn more about these, there's lots of information out there. Um, uh, The ASPCA has something called Shop With Your Heart, and they provide a list of certified brands and farms uh, and more consumer resources if you're interested. Jess, you make a great point there because I think, you know, a lot of people know of some of these big organic farms like Earthbound, Organic Valley, Stonyfield, and Applegate. And and functionally, they they work as large-scale factory farms. And so even though they're labeled as organic, you know, they they may not, you know, be treating animals, you know, any better, um, you know, than than a traditional conventional farm. And there are certainly small conventional farms that that raise animals um, while keeping animal welfare in mind. Um, one other little piece I want to talk about about animal welfare has to do with the hormones because there is a lot of controversy with the hormone treatment aside from human health issues with regard to animal welfare, um, particularly that the administration of uh, bovine growth hormone can impact negatively cow health. So there was a couple of studies done in 2003. Both of them were published in Canadian veterinary research that um, the first one suggested that while 
while BGH can increase milk production, it reduced fertility and it led to an increase in mastitis. And, and there was a, a, a correlation there. Another study and the same journal in the same year could not conclusively link uh, bovine growth hormone to decreased body condition scores amongst cows. So there's been, you know, some, some muddied information. So a more recent meta-analysis in, in 2014 that compared uh, 26 peer-reviewed studies, and this was in the Journal of American Veterinary Association, which is a higher impact journal, um, showed no significant increase in risk of clinical mastitis, nor other adverse effects on cow health and well-being. Um, so this included 26 peer-reviewed studies that involved the use of um, of BST or bovine growth hormone um, in accordance with the label instructions for treatment. So that's how, how when they administer it, the dose they administer it, and the route they administered it. So basically, what that says is, with regard to the controversy about hormone administration, it it has no bearing on on animal welfare um, when when animals are treated with that. So long story short there does not seem to be any sort of significant difference between animal welfare for organic farming versus conventional farming. All right, Andrea, oh boy, this this next topic, we have to talk about mm-hmm. the dirty dozen. So what is the dirty dozen? So every year, the Environmental Working Group, EWG, releases this list of the, quote, dirtiest produce regarding synthetic pesticides. So the publication claims to list produce items with high numbers of pesticide residues. This list makes headlines each and every year, and it worries consumers and farmers alike. So consumers are worried, of course, that their favorite fruit or vegetable will wind up on the list, and farmers are terrified that their, cre- that their crops might get vilified as being dirty. Yeah. Now, now Jess, before yeah. you jump in with the the yeah. science there, I, I just want to, yeah. you know, we always want to kind of take things with a grain of salt, right? So, so the EWG or the Environmental Working Group is actually an activist group, right? And they're funded substantially by donations from large organic farms, such as Earthbound, Organic Valley, Stonyfield Farms, and Applegate Farms. So they've got some financial conflicts of interest there. Um, On top of that, the the EWG has faced substantial criticism for sloppy scientific methods and exaggerations of toxicological risks, um, which are often in direct contrast to scientific evidence um, to the contrary. Oh, I'm so happy you said that. Um, thank you. That that really is so important. And, you know, as we said before, the EPA oversees testing of synthetic pesticides and toxicity prior to approval. And none of that is required for organic pesticides. There's no toxicity testing. There's only guidance. More than that, as we've said, several studies have demonstrated that organic products also have synthetic pesticide residues on top of the organically approved pesticides. And, you know, conveniently, EWG fails to mention this in their report. So I did some digging, and there's this really great resource, uh, the University of Arkansas Division of Agriculture Research and Extension. They have a lot to say about the Dirty Dozen list. Um, They make the claim that, you know, the list doesn't tell us anything about how much of any of the pesticides are found on the produce 
or how much risk any of the residues actually carry. So according to the EWG system, if 10 pesticides are found at 1,000 times lower the tolerance limit set by the EPA, that fruit gets ranked as dirty. While another produce item that has only one pesticide residue at a slightly higher 100 times lower the tolerance limit gets ranked as clean. So overall, the amount of residue in our food is very small. It presents very low risk based on the amount present and the amount of fruits and vegetables that we eat on a daily basis. Yep. So so Jess, you're saying here that, you know, you've got these products that are ranked as being dirty because there were 10 different pesticide residues, but all of them were well below the EPA established tolerance limit. So they're well below levels that would ever be a potential issue for human health. And they're still being categorized as being dirty. Beautifully, beautifully said and beautifully recapped. Um, Yeah, so this list is just not an accurate representation of the risk to our health from eating fruits and and vegetables. Um, The risk of not eating fruits and vegetables is actually much more of a a concern to our health. We know that in, in America... Many people typically, you know, we we don't get our recommended um, intake of fruits and vegetables. That's actually far more concerning than the likelihood of consuming trace amounts of pesticide uh, residue. So there's another great resource that I just wanted to reference here. Um, the U.S. Farmers and Ranch Alliance, they put out this article. Um, it was authored by Jeremy Brown. Um, he's a farmer. Uh, I believe he farms uh, 3,000 acres in Texas, both organically and conventionally. And he had a lot to say about organic versus conventional uh, pest management systems. And I just wanted to, to, to restate some of what he said. Um, I found it interesting. He was talking about how in some cases, and maybe you referenced this, Andrea, sorry if you already said this, but farmers will actually plant um, GMO. And again, we're GMO organic. We're talking about apples and oranges, but I just, I want to get this out. I think it's important. Um, Farmers will often plant GMO pest resistant crops around organic crops. And this is effective because GMO plants act as a pest-resistant barrier around organic crops. Um, Because of this method, they have decreased their use of organic pesticides. I I don't know. I just thought that that was so telling because the organic pesticides do such a crappy job. (laughs) They need to have this this barrier of pest-resistant crops around organic crops. Um, Pest problems in organic fields, he said, take a precise touch. So he talked about how they had a sugarcane aphid pest, um, which you described earlier, Andrea, is a a small sap-sucking insect. Um, And they had to use a pesticide because if they didn't, they would have lost their entire crop within 48 hours. That's how fast aphids will destroy crops. Um, They could have used some more natural forms of pesticides, but um, they are just simply not as successful at keeping aphids under control. So I guess this is just a long way of saying uh, or driving home how important pesticides are and how this fear of pesticides, which is only propagated by this list, the Dirty Dozen list put out by EWG, is just really spreading fear and it's not rooted in science. And actually, these synthetic pesticides are so important. Clearly, farmers are 
they're they're talking about the necessity of using them. Otherwise, they'll totally lose within 48 hours, according to this farmer, their their crop yield. Um, I also just wanted to talk about some of um, the implications. I, I don't know, you know, Andrew. Whenever I hear the term organic, I mm-hmm. feel like it's this like bougie term. <laughs> yeah. It's very, it's very elitist. It's um, very elitist. And, you know, this false dichotomy between conventional and organic, it's not just misleading, it's dangerous. This constant attention to natural versus synthetic, all it does is breed fear and distrust. When in all actuality, our food has never been safer. There are so many regulations. Um, And and as we just said, eating fewer fruits and vegetables due to this fear of pesticides um, or the high price of organics does far more harm to our health than any um, of the actual pesticide residues on our food. So I just wanted to talk briefly about this, um, you know, the implications for health disparities. I remember back when I was um, doing my master's in public health, we were learning about how difficult it is to open a Whole Foods in urban, uh, you know, in urban neighborhoods where there are high populations of minorities. It's just you know, the, the cost of these foods, we, we know that they're, you know, Whole Foods is not going to do well in that type of a community. And so what are we doing? We're, we're making food, you know, organic food is completely cost prohibitive. It's so marked up. We, as we've demonstrated in the past couple of episodes, or I, I hope that we have, they're not actually safer. They don't actually have a higher nutritional value. Um, you know, there still is pesticide use, all of these things that we've talked about. We're like vilifying buying conventional farming and making it seem like, oh, if you're not eating organic, you're you're harming yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that has a lot of implications for, you know, for widening health disparities. I just wanted to raise that. It really no, bothers me. I, I completely agree, Jess. And I feel like we we touched on it very briefly last week, but it but it certainly um, you know, it creates bigger gaps with socioeconomic status and access to nutritious foods. And I think we need to focus more on general access to fruits and vegetables. We know that, you know, across the board, these any any pesticide residues are going to be below, you know, the the criteria and conventional foods and a rinse of your produce is going to do any any additional job that you need it to be. And, you know, personally, um, you know, I'll seek out conventional foods and, you know, I'll buy an, a, an organic thing if it happens to look really good. Um, but but, uh, you know, I think stigmatizing people for, purchasing conventional products when, again, the science demonstrates that there is no difference between them with regard to safety, health, nutrition, et cetera, um, you know, certainly doing more harm than good. Absolutely. And actually, I was going to ask you, you know, I'm sure people are curious, do we eat organic? And you just answered, and I have the same exact answer. You know, when I go to reach for a bunch of bananas, it's 29 cents for a conventional conventionally grown banana and almost a dollar for an organic banana. And if I get a bunch of bananas, you know, that adds up. It's it's so much more expensive. And again, there just really is absolutely no scientific basis um, that demonstrates any sort of, you know, nutritional superiority to or of organic foods over conventional. So I hope that we've driven that point home to our listeners. 
Absolutely. Andrea, do you want to take right. home? Yeah. So we threw a lot at you today. Uh, we want to thank you for joining us. We hoped you learned a thing or two. And if you like our pod, please share with your friends and family. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, we actually recently are revamping our website. If you uh, did want to make a contribution to help support the pod, you can find us on Venmo at Unbiased SciPod. So we're, we're starting the new year. Um, you know, we know that many of you are going to be making those resolutions uh, about better health habits. We're going to jump off uh, with uh, discussion on detoxes and cleanses and what they really mean. Um, we, of course, will continue to provide COVID-19 vaccine and, and pandemic updates on our social media accounts. So be sure to also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense just science. Yeah, oh, I am a science.